0: Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. What a ride on the Vanderbilt threads we have taken over the last few weeks. If you have stuck in this far, you are a dedicated investigator. I see you in our spyglass, and I appreciate you coming back to listen to the end of this Vanderbilt family values arc, the first of them at least, Not that anything ever really ends on done and done. Everything's connected in one way or another. In this bonus to end all bonus episodes, we're going to talk about a few of the leftover threads within this story that I think might be of interest to you. A few of you have had some great comments and other connections too. Don't forget, you can find me at done and done podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We have a podcast page and a discussion group over there. So appreciative of those folks who are in that community. Come on and join and hang out with us. We're going to get in all of those little bits. And then I have the twist ending that you never saw coming about Aunt Gertrude. Let's investigate. All right, investigators, in the first half of this episode, some random loose thread sort of things. First up, Maureen Stapleton and Gloria Vanderbilt do fall out for a while because of Maureen Stapleton starring as Dodo in the Little Gloria Happy at Last miniseries made on the book written by Barbara Goldsmith. Just to mention here that Aunt Gertrude, Vanderbilt Whitney, in that miniseries is played by Angela Lansbury, and I mention this for no other reason besides, well, Angela Lansbury. She's an international treasure. What a dame. Few other mentions here from this four-hour miniseries that was released in October 1982. Betty Davis portrays our dear Alice Claypool Gwyn Vanderbilt, Reggie's mother. Glenish Johns portrays Laura, portrays Grandma Laura Morgan. You know Glenish Johns from her resounding performance as Mrs. Banks in Mary Poppins and the ever-loved Sister Suffragette. Worth a mention here, too, that Christopher Plummer also appears in the miniseries. His role is... Reginald Vanderbilt. Old Reggie. It was quite a miniseries. I want to give a big shout out to Megan. Megan posted the best spider web on the discussion group this week. Thank you, Megan. For all of y'all who have listened back to the Stanford White episode, that complicated love triangle that left Stanford White, premier architect of New York City, dead at the hands of Harry Shaw, husband of original Gibson girl Evelyn Nesbitt, how does that tie into the Vanderbilt arc? Laura Morgan, not grandma, daughter of grandma, <laughs> also the sister of Gloria and Thelma, was married to Benjamin Thaw Jr., the half-brother of Harry Thaw, of those Thaws from Pittsburgh. Megan, I got a mention in of your beloved city. Yay, Pittsburgh. There's your Evelyn Nesbitt Gibson girl true crime connection over to the Morgan family. Holy cats. This one's just pure dish, if nothing else. So Dominic Dunn, when he meets with Gloria Vanderbilt, he does so at Mortimer's. This is Dunn writing. She held a gold cigarette case with a sapphire clasp that she bought at auction. Inside, engraved, were the words to Gertie from Noel and the notes to the opening phrase of Someday I'll Find You. What? The players here, this is Noel Coward, had given this cigarette case with a sapphire clasp to his professional partner and enormous friend and influence, although their relationship is rather complicated Noel Coward has given this as a gift to Gertrude Lawrence. That's not the interesting part. Here comes Gloria on the rebound. Isn't it divine, she asked. She had bought it specially for her great friend, Bill Blass, the dress designer, and had intended to leave it to him in her will, but Blass, a constant smoker, had recently lost his own cigarette case, which had been left to him by the late Billy Baldwin. The interior designer. So she had decided to give it to him when they met for lunch later that day rather than leave it to him after she was dead. This is the business of Gloria Vanderbilt's life. I just, there was just something so intriguing about that story. I thought y'all would like that. You know, there's got to be a Truman Capote thread still left around here. This one is worth a mention. Back from September 2021. Rebecca Clark interviewed Anderson Cooper, Gloria Vanderbilt's surviving son. And this Q&A section, at least with this question, is way too good to pass up. Anderson Cooper is asked, You are organizing a literary dinner party. Which three writers, dead or alive, do you invite? Anderson Cooper's answer might surprise you. I would ask my mom and my dad and my brother Carter, I know it's not a very clever answer, but it's the truth. Carter was an editor at American Heritage Magazine and wrote book reviews for commentary, and I think he would have become a writer full-time if he had lived. It would be just the four of us for dinner, and it would be a long one. Maybe at some point, I would invite Truman Capote to stop by. Truman and my parents were once very close, and I remember him very well but they stopped speaking to him after he wrote some pretty cruel stuff about my mom in a story published in Esquire in 1975. I wouldn't want Truman to stay very long, though, and he couldn't have any alcohol. Actually, let's make it Truman circa 1966, not the bloated Truman of 1975. Vanderbilt family values indeed. Can you imagine? That's his answer. I want to hang out with my family. Maybe Truman Capote. Can you imagine what that dinner conversation would be like? I got a few more things to follow up on here about the continuing relationship of Gloria Vanderbilt and both her Whitney and Vanderbilt relations. Again, this is done writing from 1985. This past Thanksgiving, she and her son spent the day with 80 Whitney relations in Westbury. The estate is all chopped up now, she said. It's amazing what happened to it. My cousin Pam lives in Aunt Gertrude's studio now. The house where I lived, my aunt's house, is where Flora Miller lives, who is Pam's mother. And Sonny Whitney's house and the indoor pool and the stables are a country club now. Sonny stole the estate right out from under them, and they don't speak now because of that. I mean, the golf club comes right up to my cousin Flora's front lawn. From her bedroom, which was my aunt's room, she looks out and there are People in Bermuda shorts walking around. Vanderbilt shook her head and twisted one of the three signet rings she was wearing on her fingers. You know, she said, remembering back to the old days in Westbury, it seemed as if it would last forever. It just seemed to happen effortlessly. You never saw people with vacuums or anything, and the flowers would just be changed overnight by unseen hands. It was just perfect. There were a lot of people who worked very hard to make that lifestyle happen for that family, weren't there? About the Vanderbilt side of the family, Dunn continues writing, and Gloria Vanderbilt said, I'm very friendly now with all of them. In fact, every summer we go up to Newport and stay at the Breakers. I hadn't been back to the Breakers since I was a child, and of course now it's a museum with hordes of people going through. My cousin Sylvie, The daughter of my Aunt Gladys, who was my father's other sister, lives on the top floor, and I always stay in what was my father's room. It's sort of fascinating. Everything is exactly the way it was, except the tubs. Those incredible bathtubs. Nothing comes out of the tap for hot salt water piped in from the sea anymore. Whoa, a few clues in here. We are going to get back to the breakers and Newport, Rhode Island and Bellevue Avenue more specifically. Not in this episode, though. It is a fantastic time for us to take a break. Let us hear from a few of our kind sponsors. And when we come back, it's the surprise twist about Aunt Gertrude that you never saw coming. All right, friends, what is rich here in so many ways? is the surprise twist ending for Aunt Gertrude. Not only her twist ending, but how we know about it. Poor Aunt Gertrude, who, come on, let's be realistic about it, gets roped in to pursuing the custody thing with little Gloria because she had recently lost her mother, Alice Vanderbilt. And then there's Grandma Morgan, who probably, by this point, is darn tired of watching her granddaughter... While her daughter is gallivanting about, well, everywhere. But Gertrude, long ago in the eighteen nineties, thwarted in her children's cottage summer romance with Esther Hunt, will marry Harry Payne Whitney and does the dutiful wife and mother thing, has three children. Honestly, the hostess with the mostest. She's doing her best in the constructs of society that have been laid out and very regimented for her. But not only does Gertrude do that, she becomes an artist. She becomes a sculptor. She becomes a fully formed creative being. Oh, a founder of a museum too, all in spite of, but also helped financially by the gains of her birthright. But her birthright gig, the duties of a High society lady, not Gertrude's thing. Sure, she has homes in Newport, Rhode Island, and New York City, as well as the winter colony in Aiken, South Carolina, but none of those things are ever really Gertrude's thing. Even back in 1901, five years into her marriage at this point, Gertrude had written in her journal, I pity above all that class of people who have no necessity to work. They have fallen from the world of action and feeling into a state of immobility and unrest, the dregs of humanity. Gertrude is hanging with the bohemians, the drag shows. She is in all the places doing all the things and art and Honestly, whatever Gertrude wants to do, she's playing the role, but she's not like other high society girls or matrons as she grows older. Friends, this is where I can't make it up because Gloria Vanderbilt Whitney writes not one, but two fictional novels that are both lesbian poison murder books. Holy cats. I just can't. There is a delicious write-up about these attempts at fiction, written by, here's your surprise twist on the twist, Barbara Goldsmith, no less, Gloria Vanderbilt's unauthorized biographer, the author of Little Gloria, Happy at Last. I'm taking this piece, written by Barbara Goldsmith, June 3rd, 1984. Keep in mind, two books, 1932-1936, one is happening two years before the trial, one happens two years after. Uh, Reading from Barbara Goldsmith now. Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney nearly ran away with my book about her niece, little Gloria, happy at last. I began researching her life in 1974. Five years later, I was still traveling across the country, interviewing people who knew her and digging into archival material. What was so fascinating about this woman was her schizophrenic personality. She existed in two worlds. In one, she was the perfect, icy, formal uptown matron, a Vanderbilt, a Whitney, with all the social cachet, money, and power those names imply. In her other world, she was a passionate bohemian, who took lover after lover, a lady bountiful to impoverished American artists with whom she shared a riotous life in New York's Greenwich Village. Never bore the boss was the credo of her longtime assistant, Juliana Force, who greeted guests at a party in Mrs. Whitney's McDougal Alley studio while sitting in a bathtub drinking champagne. (laughs) It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Ultimately, Goldsmith continues, I could only devote about 70 pages of my book to Mrs. Whitney, but her titanic presence overwhelmed me, and the manner in which she kept her two lives totally separate astounded me. During her lifetime, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney's dual existence caused her much psychic pain. The regal uptown socialite felt great guilt about the wanton needs of this downtown bohemian and feared that this woman's, quote, violent desires and wild dreams of impossible things, unquote, might one day overwhelm her. Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney gave vent to her chaotic emotions and turbulent desires in millions of words. In journals and diaries that chronicled her inner life, her wild sexual fantasies, her homosexual longings, in letters of love and of anger written but never mailed. So it was with her novels. Her first, Walking the Dusk, was published in the fall of 1932 under the pseudonym L.J. Webb. It was a bizarre mystery. Concerning a Murder by Poison and the Lesbianism of a Society Girl. Holy cats, what? I did not see this coming. Continuing from Barbara Goldsmith, No one knew that Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney had written this book. She confided to her granddaughter, Gerda Henry, No one will ever know I wrote this. I'd rather be remembered as a first-rate artist than as a third-rate writer. It is likely, however, that what prompted Mrs. Whitney's use of a pseudonym was her fear of personal exposure in dealing with this ultra-subject matter. A Love Affair, her second novel, was completed in 1936. During her lifetime, it was never titled. Unfortunately, it fits her earlier self-evaluation. It is a third-rate novel dealing with the same themes as Walking the Dusk lesbianism, although in this case implicit and never consummated, and murder by poison. In both novels, the murderer goes free. Okay, so these books are not great by all accounts, and a lot of her writing is so intensely personal to Gertrude. She will be remembered for many things in her life, but not as a novelist. But you know what they say, if you want to get to know a fiction writer read their fiction, don't read their memoir. It's all in there. Okay, Barbara Goldsmith continues. This story, we're talking now about the untitled one in her lifetime, now titled A Love Affair. This story is set in Paris and revolves around a vendue. Sandra Fain, known as, y'all are never going to believe it, Madame Nada. Madame Nada what the Marchioness of Milford Haven's nickname was. Whoa, who's having an affair with a womanizing American lawyer, Marston Overstreet. Sandra's best friend, Beatrice Graham, comes from America to visit. Beatrice loves Sandra beyond reason, so much so, in fact, that in the final pages of the book, she poisons Overstreet's invalid wife, Eileen, to clear the way for Sandra and Marston to marry. In the penultimate scene, Sandra, suspecting the truth, falls at Beatrice's feet as Beatrice announced that the two women must sever their relationship. Don't write. I shan't either. Nothing in the physical world is possible between us. In this next paragraph... I am making some on-purpose substitutions in the paragraph to replace a word that has been very much misappropriated from the Romani culture, using in more correct adjectives or nouns where they apply. Goldsmith continues, the book closes with a love scene in which Marston carries Sandra across the threshold of a hygienic replica of a Vardo wagon that he has fashioned for her. Earlier in the novel, Sandra was initially attracted by the real thing, but repelled on close contact with the grimy and unsavory nature of the real traveler's caravan. In this ersatz setting, Sandra's luxurious clothes spill out of trunks and the, quote, lovely bright blue sofa makes into a bed, unquote. Like her heroine, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney spent her life playing the hygienic, Traveler. Think about that. Two words right there, y'all. Hygienic traveler. What a way to think about it. Goldsmith continues This is a silly, shallow novel, one that could have been written by a dress designer. It's full of descriptions of clothes. The novel's only value might be in the unwittingly chilling portrait it presents of upper class women as chattels, totally subservient to men while treating them with manipulation, subterfuge, and disdain. Money is all, sex is a weapon. This book might be used in a women's studies course to evoke an age now, thankfully, she adds in parentheses, extinct. What is fascinating, however, is that the novel brings to light certain questions concerning the posthumous rights of the author and the nature of the reading public. In 1932, since Gertrude Whitney would not lend her name to Walking the Dusk, the publicity department of Coward McCann released the titillating news that the author was one of the ten most famous women in America. Some people thought the author to be Ethel Barrymore. But without Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney's name on it, this novel only sold 770 copies, causing her publisher some embarrassment. Her next novel, A Love Affair, then untitled, was rejected by them, and presumably by several other publishers as well. I don't know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Let's go ahead and get through the rest of this particular write-up from Goldsmith. In the promotional material accompanying A Love Affair is the assertion that Mrs. Whitney's family discovered this manuscript in 1977. Her great-grandson's plans to donate the profits from its publication to answer questions concerning American prisoners of war still held in Vietnam and Laos. But what of the questions the publication of the novel raises? It was not discovered. It was rejected when originally written under a pseudonym. Now it bears the signature of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. That's what's different, and that's what's being marketed the aura of glamour associated with the Vanderbilt and Whitney names elicits trace memories of vast wealth and power. We know that Gloria Vanderbilt's name on blue jeans and other products have made her considerably more money than she inherited. These names are a magnet to attract readers who seek to know the innermost secrets of Mrs. Whitney's world. The accompanying material also includes a column by Susie of the New York Daily News that asserts this novel is autobiographical, thereby even more closely identifying the work with the persona of its author. Can it really matter, half a century later, if Gertrude is Sandra Fane? If Overstreet is a combination of her two lovers, Dr. Josh Hartwell and stockbroker William Stackpole? if Beatrice might have been a combination of Adele Burden and Avon Davidson. I, for one, do not hold with the right of posthumous privacy. I believe that we are richer for knowing about both of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney's lives and worlds. What I object to here is the appeal to the voyeuristic instincts of the reading public. The name of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, a superior woman, is being used to sell an inferior novel that otherwise would have never been published. Investigators, how do you feel about that? Gertrude, a superior woman with this whole alternative side, novelist. I'd rather be remembered as a first-rate sculptor than a third-rate novelist, but this unexplored wealth of imagination that she's going to continue to do in her own secret way. I would have been remiss if I left that last clue unrevealed in this Vanderbilt family values arc. Thank you all so, so much for listening. If you've made it this far, you do need an investigator badge. What a few fun weeks we've had. We are coming back with some new episodes and a new thread for you Monday, April 11th. April 11th is your next done day. If you need more done and done episodes between now and then, it's a great time to catch up on older episodes. You can also join us at patreon.com for ad-free and early episodes. Along with bonus episodes, I have a number of not-done-yets dropping over there over the next few weeks while we're taking a hiatus until April 11th. Again, another big shout-out to the folks who are supporting over on Patreon. Patreon. Y'all are the very best. All of y'all, very best. Thanks so much again for coming back to listen. Here's my request. I got a clue to throw out to you. What cases do you want to hear about? I'm planning the next big block and I want to hear from you. You can send me an email at doneanddone at gmail.com. Come play with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Do you want us to head back to Hollywood? Do you want us to go someplace new like Palm Beach? What case do you want to get done and done with? Let me know. Wishing everyone the most incredible two weeks until we meet again. Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone@gmail.com. at gmail.com